Well, there's a great debate in the modern church today over the idea that as Christians we must strive to follow Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, from Facebook to full-length books, there are people with a lot to say on both sides of that argument. Some say that under the new covenant of Christ, we no longer have to strive for God, that because of grace and our adoption as sons and daughters with Christ, there's really nothing left for us to strive for. And yet the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the Philippian church, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, Philippians 1.27. And yet the very same apostle wrote to the Galatian church, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, Galatians 5, 4, and 5. In other words, we cannot produce perfect righteousness in our own lives by our own efforts. That's why our hope is not in ourselves or anything we're able to accomplish on our own. No, our hope is in Christ alone. And because of that, all that we can do is wait for him to complete his righteousness in us. So which is it? Do we strive for Christ or do we rest in him? Well, the answer is both. You see, in fact, the only problem with either one of these arguments is when people think they're mutually exclusive, when in fact they coexist quite well together. We can and should rest in the completed work of Christ on the cross. His salvific work on our behalf is not something we could ever earn or deserve. It is a free gift of unmerited grace that he has given us through our faith in him and we can absolutely rest in that salvation. And yet at the same time, Jesus didn't say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, rest on your couch and pray that all nations become my disciples. No, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds a lot like striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, for Christians, the gospel demands that we strive to advance its purposes in our lives and in the lives of others. Jesus himself talked about it in Luke 13, 24. The author of Hebrews talks about it in Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. Absolutely, we are to strive for the gospel. But listen, we don't strive to earn our salvation. We strive because of our salvation. The problem that some of the early Christians were facing, particularly the Hebrew Christians in the first century, was that even after coming to Christ, they were still striving to earn their righteousness through the law. They were trying to check off a certain number of religious boxes in their lives, while at the same time doing very little to actually strive for the advancement of the gospel itself. 
which turns out to be a pretty accurate description of much of the modern church in the West today, where if, if we're not mindful of our own walk with Christ, we can end up participating in a lot of religious activities without ever actually advancing the purposes of the gospel in our own lives or in the lives of others. And again, this was the very issue of facing this first century church as the author of the letter to the Hebrews, which we've been studying now for about four months, spends this 12th chapter that we're looking at today addressing their tendency to continually gravitate back to the old Jewish ceremonial laws and regulations, their old uh, religious system, instead of staying committed to the radically different path they'd chosen when they chose to follow Christ, back, back when their hearts were still striving for the gospel. And so to make his point, rather than describing the life spent following Jesus Christ as a religious system, instead the author likens it to running a race. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1, it's a metaphor, by the way, that's used throughout the New Testament to describe the Christian life, especially uh, by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatian Christians who were also struggling to continue following Jesus. He wrote, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Galatians 5.7, in his letter to the Corinthian Christians, he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it? 1 Corinthians 9.24. To the Christians at Philippi, he wrote, hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Philippians 2, 16. Again, to the Corinthians, he explains that following Jesus should never be without purpose or direction. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. 1 Corinthians 9, 26. And finally, toward the end of his life, he wrote those now very famous words to his spiritual son, Timothy, at the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. You see, Paul is describing the life spent striving side by side with others, running a race for the sake of the gospel of Christ, which explains why Paul also talked a lot in his letters about letting go of everything else in his life outside of Christ. Because listen, you cannot run a race while you are holding on to other things. And really, this is where we get to the heart of the matter. Because if you enter a race and you're going to run to win, then you must run with abandon, letting go of anything and everything else that you are tethered to. And therein lies the problem with the first century church then, the 21st century today, and probably much of the church in between, you see, because we are tethered to too many other things to run this race effectively. We enter the race ready to strive for the gospel, but along the way we stop and we, we pick up other things, sometimes heavy things, 
that weigh us down, sometimes unhealthy things that wear us down, and sometimes attractive things that slow us down until we burden ourselves with so many other things in this life that we can no longer run in the race. And so we stumble around under the weight of all the things that we never should have picked up to begin with. We stumble around in our homes, and we stumble around at our jobs, and we stumble around in our churches, and we even stumble around in our relationships, and then we wonder why we aren't able to do more to advance the gospel in our homes, and at our jobs, and in our churches, and in our relationships. Well, it's because we're tethered to too many other things. You cannot run a race while you're holding on to other things. And so here's the question that you must ask yourself if you find that you are too burdened with other things in your life to properly tend to the most important thing in your life, namely Jesus Christ and the advancement of his gospel. If you are too weighed down or too weak or too distracted to run that race, then ask yourself this question. What must I abandon in my life today so that I can run the race he has set before me untethered. What is it time for me to let go of so that I can run once again? That's exactly what the author of our letter is trying to get across to his readers to have them consider. So let's jump back in where we left off last time uh, and see what we can learn about running with abandon. We'll start at Hebrews 12 and begin with the first three verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary, or faint-hearted. So he starts off the chapter with, therefore since we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, which is certainly a reference to uh, the long list of heroes of the faith in the preceding chapter that we looked at last week, but it's more than that. If you read that verse in the ancient Greek, the word cloud, nephos, in the Greek was a figure of speech. It was actually used quite often in, in classic Greek and Latin literature to describe a great number of people. But that's just when the word was used by itself. But our author here doesn't just describe a cloud of witnesses. He calls it a great cloud of witnesses. The word witnesses, by the way, is the Greek word martus, which also means spectator. And then when you factor in the metaphor that the author's using here of the Christian life as a race, and then also consider the word surrounded in that verse, perikamehi, meaning to be encompassed by or to be encircled by, when you, when you put all of that together, it becomes clear that the author is picturing this great host of saints in heaven who've gone before us, probably also including the angels when you consider Ephesians 3, 10 and 11, all as spectators in a heavenly stadium encircling the runners. That's all of us in this great race, the very same race those saints before us have already run, but now because they've finished their course, they're cheering us on from the heavenly realm. It's an awesome picture. 
So the author's saying, look, there are a lot of people, some who I just listed for you, who have not only proven that the race can be run, but they're cheering you on. And just like you, they too have all kinds of shortcomings and sin and distractions in their own lives. So let them be an example to you that in spite of all of that, you can lay aside, you can abandon anything and everything that would keep you from running with endurance, the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Now there are two very important points to be made about that quote, run with endurance, the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Two points to be made before we get into our outline, okay? First, this race that is the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Notice he says to run with endurance, which is to say with a prolonged, sustained effort that goes the distance with patient, steadfast, single-minded determination. Because the race is a marathon, it's not a sprint, which also means, secondly, that you must run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Okay, in every race, there is a pace setter. Someone who runs out front and sets the pace, and all the other runners look to the pace setter to know how fast or how stud, uh, steady to run. And so the author says, look to Jesus when you run the race. Because Jesus is the pace setter, not you. We are not in a position to get up every morning and decide how hard we want to follow after Jesus that day. Because we don't get to set the pace. A lot of times we think we do. But that's not our job. No, as Christians, our job is to follow Jesus each day at whatever pace he happens to be leading you over and over and over again. Jesus called men and women to follow him. He certainly didn't call them to lead him and he did not call them to catch up with him. He called them to follow him. Why? Because he sets the pace. Our job is to stay in lockstep with him, whatever that pace may be. But look, you, you cannot do any of that when you're weighed down by other things. So the author says, abandon every weight in your life because you cannot run a race while you're holding on to other things. And he actually says, lay aside or abandon every weight and sin which clings so closely. We're going to come back to the sin part in a few minutes, but first we'll talk about the weight that he refers to in our lives because those are actually two different things. Notice he doesn't say lay aside every weight of sin. He says lay aside every weight and sin. There are people who have confused these as one and the same, and to be sure, sin certainly can be a weight in your life. But here the author has made clear a distinction between the two. Right? If, if, if the weight that he's referring to was the same thing as the sin he's referring to, then he would be saying, lay aside every sin and sin, which clings so closely, which obviously doesn't make any sense. So he makes a distinction here between the weight that we carry and the sin that we carry, because not all of the weight in our lives, listen, not all of the weight in our lives that we carry is sin. And yet that weight can absolutely prohibit you from running the race set before you. 
The word weight in that verse is the Greek word onkos. In, in addition to weight, it also means mass or heaviness. In fact, it was often used in ancient literature to refer to someone who carried excess body fat, anything that could hinder sufficient breathing or free movement of the limbs to the point that that person could no longer run in a race. So look, there are things that we allow in our lives Things that we, we pick up along the way that may not be sin in and of themselves, but they weigh us down to the point that we're unable to effectively run the race that God has set before us. Uh, financial weights, for instance, right? If your finances are so tight between your mortgage payments and your car payments and your phone service and your television service and your entertainment spending and whatever else there is to the point that you are too strapped financially to be able to pour your resources into the ministry, whether that's through the local church or simply something that God is telling you to do for someone else, but you can't because there's never anything left in your account to work with then listen it may be time for you to abandon some of that weight you're carrying around so you can get back in the race that has been set before you busyness busyness can be a weight in your life that keeps you from being able to run right does your uh, schedule control you or do you control your schedule I'm, I'm asking myself that question now if your schedule controls you, it may be time to abandon some of those things on your schedule so that you can run the race set before you. Hurt. People get wounded by other people. It's a reality of life. At times it is unavoidable. But listen, if you allow that hurt to linger too long, it can weigh you down so much that you're no longer able to run. Look, if you're struggling with hurt to the point that it is weighing you down, it is time to abandon that hurt so you can run the race. He set before you. And here's a big one. Grief. Listen, God intends for us to grieve at times in our lives. It is not a sin when we grieve where there's a loss. In fact, it is right for us to grieve. And although it changes over time, grief in one form or another can actually remain with you for a lifetime. And you know what? That's okay. Unless you allow that grief to take you out of the race. Now listen, this is one of the reasons... We're commanded in scripture to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel because when one among us is so weighed down by grief that they're unable to run any longer, we don't stand by and watch while they drop out of the race. No, we lock arms with them and we help them finish the race. Grief can be such a heavy weight in your life, but it doesn't have to take you out of the race as long as you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus more than that grief. And I'm telling you, you'll find, maybe even with the help of others, that even with that grief, you can still run. The author in verse 2 says that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, we have no idea the grief that Jesus had to endure on that cross, dying for people who were mocking him, people who were beating him, people 
who hated him. In fact, the, the great British scholar F.F. F. Bruce wrote, to die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. It was a punishment reserved for those who were deemed most unfit to live. A punishment for those who were subhuman. That's the death that Jesus endured for you and for me, for the very people who were killing him, and yet as deep as his grief was, he didn't allow it to take him out of the race. Why? Because of the joy set before him. Because he knew what was waiting for him at the end of the race. Right In the first century 20-volume work titled Antiquities, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus describes this ancient practice where they would set prizes in front of the athletes just before they would run as a motivation for them to endure whatever hardship might go, uh, come their way during the race by keeping them focused on what was waiting for them at the end of the race. It's exactly what the author's telling us to do here, just as Jesus did, no matter how heavy the weight in your life, don't lose sight of what is waiting for you at the end of the race. Because when your vision is fixed on something so much greater than the weight you're holding on to, it no longer feels impossible to abandon that heavy thing in your life, to lay it aside so that you can run again. So ask yourself honestly, is there a weight in my life that is keeping me from running this race. If there is, you must be willing to lay it aside because you cannot run a race while you're holding on to other things, heavy things that weigh you down until you're so restricted that running becomes impossible. So if you feel like you've been stumbling around spiritually, then be honest with yourself about what it is that has you weighed down, what is keeping you from running the race, whatever it is. Maybe it's time you laid it aside so you can run once again. The author says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. In other words, consider what Jesus went through so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, Jesus understands whatever it is, whatever is weighing you down. Just look at what he had to endure at the hands of others and you'll see that he understands C.S. Lewis once said, God knows our situation. He will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. What matters is the sincerity and perseverance of our will to overcome them. Let's keep reading as the author now comes back to the issue of sin. Verses 4 through 17. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood... Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful, rather unpleasant, uh, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The author moves on from the heavy things in our lives that weigh us down to the sin in our lives that wears us down. As he says, in your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, uh, which just as an interesting side note, factors heavily into the historical dating of this letter because we know by this statement that it was written before any of Jesus' followers were martyred. And of course that has nothing to do with the point he's making here but just wanted to share that with you. So what he's saying here is your greatest struggle as a Christian is not persecution or martyrdom. Your greatest struggle as a Christian is your own sin. And then he frames that statement in the context of discipline as he quotes Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 from the Septuagint, by the way, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, which happens to be worded slightly differently than the Hebrew translation. As he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In other words... The greatest struggle that you're facing in your life is your own sin. And because we sin, we're disciplined by God as an act of love and grace, just as any loving parent disciplines their disobedient child, right? If, uh, if you didn't care at all about your kids, then you wouldn't bother to discipline them. But because we do love our children, we discipline, and it's the same way with God. So the author says, don't despise that discipline. In fact, we should actually embrace God's discipline in our lives because of what it does for us. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So sin wears us down. God's discipline builds us back up. And then in verses 12 through 17, uh, he expounds on what he had said earlier in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, abandon every sin in your life. Now listen, no one in their right mind would ever say that their greatest desire in life is to spend their time working against themselves. And yet, sin is nothing short of just that. Sin is us expending our own time and energy working against ourselves. That's the insanity of sin, and yet it is the greatest struggle of our lives. And look, you cannot run a race effectively when you're running it in the wrong direction. Right? If you enter a race and take off in the wrong direction, you're working against yourself. And yet, as ridiculous as that sounds, that is exactly what we're doing when we sin. We're running the race in the wrong direction. We're working against ourselves. And the further you run in the wrong direction, typically, the more endurance you'll need to get back on track. Again, C.S. Lewis wrote, we all want progress, 
But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. You see, look, we're all called to run a race that has been set before us, to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, and yet nothing will stop you in your tracks faster than sin. Interestingly, in those last six verses we just read, the author talks about three specific sins because I believe they happen to be three of the sins that hinder God's people from running the race set before them more than any of the others. In verse 14, he says, strive for peace with everyone. In other words, stop quarreling among yourselves. Okay? Disunity within the church is the most common factor in churches that close their doors for good. It's a fact. Historically, when the body of Christ has been attacked from outside its walls, from secular powers that have come against it, be it governments or social movements or other religions or a cultural climate that is hostile to the gospel, whatever the case may be, historically, when the church has been attacked from the outside, the church has thrived even more. It's when the church is attacked from within that it cannot stand. Just think about the churches that you know of or have heard of that have closed their doors almost every single time. It is because of disunity or some other sin that causes disunity within, within the church. That's why he says strive for peace. And in fact, if you read through the New Testament, you will find that the harshest rebukes from Jesus and his apostles are those addressing people who cause disunity within his church. In short, you cannot run the race that God has set before you. You cannot be a good Christian. You cannot serve the Lord or even claim to love him while you're simultaneously tearing down your brother or sister in Christ. In fact, you have no right to claim to be in love with God at all while you're hating on your spiritual siblings. I'll tell you, uh, I can handle all kinds of attacks and mocking and demoralizing comments from unbelievers just fine. And I have. That's just the world being the world. That's fine. What disgusts me more than anything is to see brothers and sisters in Christ, those who claim to love God, tearing each other down, treating each other as adversaries, and putting themselves before one another. Listen, you cannot run the race before you if you cannot love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it doesn't matter what someone said or did to offend you. It doesn't matter how strongly you disagree with them. It doesn't matter how much your personalities clash if you cannot love and forgive the family members of God, then you have disqualified yourself from the race. Listen to me. No matter how offended you are, if you're not loving your brother or sister in the church, you'd better abandon that sin in your life like the poison that it is. Because if you hold on to that offense, that sin, that unforgiveness in your heart, it will wear you down until you are utterly incapable of running in the race. And listen, that doesn't excuse their bad behavior, by the way. They may well need to repent of their own sin toward you. Absolutely. But look, none of that gives you a free pass to do anything except love and forgive them. Which leads to the second sin in this passage. He says, see to it that no root of bitterness 
springs up and causes trouble, which is a reference to Deuteronomy 29.18, which is a warning against people who are idolaters. In fact, uh, if you keep reading in Deuteronomy, you find that these are people who bless themselves, he says, and walk in the stubbornness of their own hearts. And so they become idolaters of themselves, right? As bitterness rules in their lives and poisons those around them. And look, I know I haven't been a pastor as long as some, but I've been a pastor long enough to see bitterness ruin more than one person's life. I'm telling you, it is a classic example of a sin that we commit that only works against ourselves. We think we're punishing the other person for what they did to us by holding on to our bitterness toward them. But the truth is, until you let go of that bitterness, the only person that you are hurting is yourself. Furthermore, you will never be able to run the race that God has set before you as long as there's bitterness in your heart. It is a ball and chain that the enemy uses to wear you down until you are incapable of running. Don't let bitterness ruin you. When someone has hurt you, let it go. You let God convict them and deal with their sin. That's not your job. Listen, you're not accountable for what they did to you. But you are accountable for how you respond to what they did to you. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That is your sole responsibility to refuse to allow bitterness, which is idolatry, by the way, to take root in your heart. Thirdly, he mentions sexual sin like Esau, he says. And although we don't have anything much in the biblical record about Esau and sexual sin other than this passage and, of course, the fact that he took foreign wives, which was at the very least viewed negatively by his parents in Genesis 26 and 27. But listen, there is, however, actually a fair amount of ancient historical Jewish writing about that very subject. In uh, the second century BC book of Jubilees, Esau's wives are described as being involved in illicit behavior. Also the first century BC Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria in at least two of his writings that I've read or referenced speaks of Esau as being sexually immoral. In fact, one of them uh, it says that Esau was a man of wickedness. The point being, there was probably more to the depths of Esau's sin than we have in the biblical record, including his sexual sin. And of course, uh, unless you've been living in a cave somewhere, then you know that sexual sin is a blight on the American culture today and on the American church as well. And if you read the Old Testament, it's obvious that we haven't invented anything in that regard. Sexual sin is as old as the human race because it is one of the most effective tools that the enemy has at his disposal and yet it is only as effective as we are complicit. The only power that Satan can exercise over you is that which you give him. And so as good as it may feel in the moment, every moment that we willfully engage in sin is a moment we've lost in the race because we're running the wrong way. We're working against ourselves. Well, why would anyone ever knowingly work against their own interest? It's because we're not all that convinced that what God has to offer us is actually better than what the world has to offer us. 
We say we believe that. But deep down, I think we struggle with the reality of it, which means we're not always all that concerned about running in the race to begin with, which is why we so often refuse to abandon the sin that clings so closely. But I'm telling you, (laughs) if we could just get a glimpse, if we could just get a glimpse of what is actually waiting for us at the end of the race, We wouldn't want anything else. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. There's a famous quote by Ravi Zacharias that someone here reminded me of recently. He said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is a lie. And every moment of your life that you give to it is just another moment that you're working against yourself. And so look, if there's sin in your life, sin that is keeping you out of the race that God has set before you, if you will abandon that sin through repentance and focus on what lies ahead, I'm telling you, you will want for nothing. Let's finish the chapter, verse 18 to the end. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make, made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The author is now describing Israel's terrifying experience at Mount Sinai where the old covenant, the Mosaic law, was given to them through great and fearful power where in fact the presence of God actually shook the mountain while his voice thundered through smoke and fire. In fact, the power of God was so great that if anyone but Moses even touched the base of the mountain, man or beast, they would be put to death. And remember who this letter was written to, a group of Hebrew Christians who were well familiar with Israel's history. So these references to what happened with Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai would have particularly hit home with the author's audience here. In fact, he quotes Deuteronomy 9.19 where Moses says, I tremble with fear. 
where on Mount Sinai, Moses feared that God might actually destroy all of Israel because they were worshiping a golden calf. And so the author is trying to make the point here that we need to be very careful today, fearfully careful, in fact, that we don't fall into idolatry just as those early Israelites had. So he says at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So all of the idols of this world, everything that man has made will be removed, only leaving the things that cannot be shaken and included in the things that cannot be shaken are those who the author has been describing throughout this chapter. Followers of Jesus Christ who abandon every other pursuit in their lives and run the race that has been set before them, offering to God acceptable worship, not the worship of idols, which can be anything, by the way, in our lives that we put before God. So the author says, abandon every other pursuit in your life and offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. Why? Because you cannot run the race before you if you're chasing after other things. Even good things, if we put them in priority over following Jesus Christ can become idols in our lives. You understand, Listen, God doesn't want to be a part of your life. Do you understand that? God doesn't want to be. He's not interested in being a part of your life. He is a consuming fire, which means your life should be utterly and completely consumed by him. This life isn't just about going to work and earning money and raising a family and being successful and then hopefully leaving something to your children or maybe leaving some influence on this world after you're gone. No, this life is a race where we're meant to strive side by side with each other for the faith of the gospel with our eyes and our hearts fixed on the prize that awaits us when we've finished the course, which means every single thing that we do, going to work, and earning money and raising a family and experiencing success and influencing others. It is all to be done. Every single bit of it is to be done for the sake of the gospel because of what awaits us at the end of the race. We're running for a prize that is infinitely bigger and better than anything this world has to offer, which means everything that you do must be viewed in light of eternity. I'm telling you, once you shift your thinking from what is temporary, from what what has been made, the things that we spend so much of our lives chasing after, when you shift your thinking from what is temporary to what is eternal, your definition of success will change radically. D.L. Moody once said, our greatest fear should not be a failure but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. The great missionary Amy Carmichael, who rescued thousands of young girls from the sex trade, died in India with no stone to mark her grave. Olympic champion Eric Liddell, about whom the movie Chariots of Fire was made, died in a Chinese prison as a missionary where it was said that he ministered to the elderly and sick in that prison right up until his death. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged in a Nazi concentration camp for running an underground Bible college and taking a stand for the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ during the reign of Hitler. The Apostle Paul was decapitated. The Apostle Peter was crucified upside down. And the Apostle John lived out his life in exile on a remote island. You tell me, were these people successful? Not by the world standards. But I guarantee you, if you could ask them that question today, every single one of them would say, oh yes. Why? Because they abandon every other pursuit in their lives to run the race that God had set before them. And the question is, what are you pursuing in this life more than anything else? Something that is made? Something that is temporary? Or something that cannot be shaken? It's so important that we answer that question with honesty and clarity. Because you cannot run the race set before you if you're holding on to other things. If you're too weighed down, if you're too weak, if you're too distracted to run the race, if you're stumbling around spiritually, then it is time for you to ask yourself, what must I abandon in my life today? so that I can run the race that he set before me? What have I picked up along the way that is keeping me from running like I should? And look, nobody ever said that it would be easy letting go of those things, which is precisely why the Apostle Paul wrote, for his sake, for the sake of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3.8, Paul describes abandoning every other pursuit in his life as suffering. Why? Because it hurts to let those things go. But you understand we must if we are to run with abandon the race that is set before us. So what are you tethered to today? What is weighing you down? What is wearing you down? What is slowing you down? Whatever it is, why don't you let go of it today? Learn once again how to run with abandon.